Church exists to shine as light in our homes, in our community, and in our world. To contact us or for more information, see our website at wildwoodchurch.org. If you would, please take out your Bibles now and turn in them in the New Testament to the book of Ephesians and chapter number 2. Some of you have printed Bibles. I know some of you have electronic Bibles. Uh, If you don't have a Bible, there's one under a chair in front of you, and you could take that Bible in the back part, turn to page 151, and you would find yourself at Ephesians chapter 2, and we'll be getting there in just a few minutes. We're launching today our new fall series, which we have entitled Amazing Grace. And as a culture, the word grace often can come up. And if you did a word association with the word grace, you might get different responses back. If you told someone, what do you think of when you think of grace? They might think of a masterful dancer, or maybe they would think of an agile athlete. When grace is mentioned, someone might think of a well-mannered individual who displays grace in their life. For many Americans, when you talk about grace, they think about mealtime, because at mealtime, we give grace. We give thanks to God for our food. Somebody might actually say, with the word association with grace, they might think of a a blue-eyed blonde, because grace is a very common name for girls in our culture. And the most famous Grace of all was Grace Kelly, the Academy Award nominee actress who at the age of 26 married Prince Rainier and left the acting business and became the Princess of Monaco. A lot of different word associations with the word grace. If I mention grace, you may Think of what we've just been singing today, and that is the song Amazing Grace, which is an American anthem actually written by an Englishman, John Newton, who came face to face with grace. And that one-time slave trader later became a pastor. But in my opinion, grace at times is misunderstood. And I can guarantee you that frequently grace is underappreciated. What's really interesting about grace is, though, it is what distinguishes biblical Christianity from every other religious system, all of them. And what we're going to do today is simply introduce ourselves to amazing grace. Now, if you're familiar with that song, Newton's song, I want to remind you of the very first line of that song. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound. I don't know if you've ever thought about that line, but what is he communicating there? Amazing grace, how sweet the sound. Well, the idiom in our culture, when we talk about something being sweet, we mean something is pleasant, something is satisfying. Something is gratifying. Something is delightful. And that's the idea, the concept that Newton was trying to capture. Amazing grace. How pleasant it is. How gratifying. How satisfying. How delightful it is. 
And that little line from the song has special meaning to me. Reminds me of my story and my introduction to grace. And I want to share a little bit with you this morning. Now, in order to do that, it means we're going to have to get into a time machine and go back to the 1960s. In 1962, at the age of 11, my family moved from the New Jersey area, my dad worked in New York City, to Kansas City. There were five of us, my mom and my dad, my two younger sisters and myself. We were church attenders, but had really never had anyone explain the gospel to us. And as we moved into Kansas City, began to go to this elementary school called Osage Elementary, and we found out that there was a new church starting at Osage in the cafeteria. And so we decided to attend this new church that was meeting in my elementary school. And it was there that I met Pastor Glenn. Pastor Glenn was very warm-hearted. And over a period of months, our whole family, all five of us, had understood the gospel message about Christ and had responded and trusted in him as our rescuer from sin and judgment. In my particular situation, it didn't really happen as Pastor Glenn shared, but it happened when this couple, Willard and Margaret Grant, who were child evangelists, were traveling the country as they always did, and they had this very extravagant little show that they would put on. They would use marionettes to tell Bible stories and everything, and it was as they shared the gospel message of Christ that it began to become clear to me. I don't remember really what happened at the end of that meeting. They probably had kids raise their hands if they wanted to trust in Christ as Savior, but I didn't raise my hand. But what they had said was driven deep into my soul. And I remember going home, and it was in my bedroom at the very front of our house. Actually laying on my bed, I was wrestling with all of these issues of sin and judgment and heaven and hell and Christ's death, and it was right there on my bed when I placed my faith in Jesus Christ as my rescuer. Now, Pastor Glenn heard about that, and he was very kind and very encouraging. But over the next number of years, it may have been my failure, but to me as a young boy and a young teenager, the church service seemed to be awfully boring to me. In fact, the Bible to me became the most boring book in all of the world. I think In my mind, I was just hearing the same stuff over and over again. And so by the time I was 15, I made a vow. I said, there is one thing I will never, ever do. I will never become the pastor of a church. Not going to happen. In fact, I had my plans I wanted to go into radio broadcasting. I was going to be a DJ. You know, I was going to be spinning the wax and listening to the tunes. That was the idea. That's age 15. Now, I want you to understand, I really loved living in Kansas City. I loved it much more than living in New Jersey. And we were going to, I was going to a brand new high school. 
It had just opened. I was going to be part of four-year high school, the very first full graduating class, Shawnee Mission South High School. I was thrilled. I had all of these friends. Life was good. But at the age of 16, several months into my junior year of high school, my dad came in and said to us as a family, I've got a, a little announcement to make. And he said, I have received a very significant promotion to take a job back in New York City, and we are moving back to New Jersey. I want to tell you something. I gave the best protest to that that I could. I logged the loudest and the longest protest I could with my parents, told my dad all the reasons why that wasn't going to work. But when you're 16 years old and your family's moving, you move. So we moved to New Jersey and uh, went to high school there, finished high school there. And then I was facing the college decision, you know, where am I going to go to college? And I had enough of a relationship with God that I realized I needed to be careful and thoughtful about this choice. I also knew that I was going to go to a university that had an outstanding journalism school. Uh, ultimately, I wanted something like a top dozen a journalism school because I was going on the radio. I was going to be a disc jockey. And I made the decision, you know where I really want to go? It was one of the top journalism schools in the country, and that was the University of Kansas. You see, that's where my buddies were going to college. But due to a technicality between my high school and the University of Kansas, that door got slammed shut. And as my college selection came down to things, came down to a final two choices. And those final two choices were, both of them good journalism schools, the University of Texas and the University of Nebraska. I want you to know, I have to live with it every single week of my life, thinking that I could have been a horn. It's a very disturbing thought. It could have happened, but it didn't. I chose to go, yeah, amen, I heard out there. <laughs> I chose to go to the University of Nebraska. You know the criteria I used to pick that out? The University of Nebraska was closer to Kansas City. Deep thoughts go into these choices. About three and a half hours away, I said, I'm going to go to the University of Nebraska. By the way, I'd never been to the state of Texas. I'd never been to the state of Nebraska. So I had to get to Nebraska. You know how I got there? My parents flew me to, guess where, Kansas City. And my buddies from high school drove me the three and a half hours up to the University of Nebraska. Now, as I enter into my first semester at the University of Nebraska, I, I'm like a typical college student. I had a very clear central goal. And that central goal is I wanted to have a steady girlfriend. I was a clear thinker. I understood what it was all about. But part of the problem I had is I had never been in this state before. I didn't know anybody, and I did not have a car, which puts a little difficulty on really trying to develop relationships with girls when you're in college and you've got no wheels. Well, by the end of the first semester, I hadn't been very successful at my primary goal, which was to end up with a steady girlfriend. Now, they did things a little differently in those days. It came to the semester break. 
which didn't actually correspond with Christmas break at the university. It was actually about a five-day break that would occur between semesters. And what would happen is that everybody that was from the state of Nebraska would go home for five days. Uh, Those who weren't, the dorms remained open. And so that's where I spent my first semester break in the dormitory. I lived in Abel Hall. It had 10, actually it had 11 different floors. I lived on 10th floor. We had 78 men on a floor. During that semester break on my floor, there were two of us. You know, the Hess kid uh, who'd come from New Jersey and a foreign exchange student. In, in, in our dormitory, you would have your room, but there was, there, were, there was no bathroom facilities or anything inside of your room. You had to go down the hallway, and then there was this sort of large communal bathroom area with, you know, mo- I don't know, 15 or 20 sinks and this large shower area. Well, nobody's there. So I turn my stereo up as loud as I can get it, and I go down, and I'm taking my shower so that I can hear the music from my room in the shower area. Get through with my shower, you know, my hair's all wet and everything, and I'm returning to my room. And by the way, in those days, I had a lot more hair than I've got now. I'll show you a picture of it right there. Uh, (laughs) That's not actually me. That's a spoof of the former football coach at Nebraska, Bill Callahan. But there is a real picture here of me to give you some kind of idea. It's a little dark, but, you know, I had a lot of hair hanging down here. And, you know, when when your hair is wet, what we would all do in those days, being the styling guys that we were, of course, you had to blow dry your hair. So as I come back into my room, I'm thinking, got to get the blow dryer out, got to you know, do all this stuff. That's what I'm focused on, all this wet hair plastered to my head. And as I'm getting ready to blow dry, suddenly there is a, a man, a gentleman in the doorway of my room. Who in the world is this guy? He says, hello, my name is Dean Hatfield. I would like to ask you a question. I'm thinking, dude, I've got to blow dry my hair. But I said, okay, go ahead and ask me a question. And he said, if you were to die tonight, do you know where you would spend eternity? And immediately, I quoted back to him John 3.16. I only knew two verses of Scripture. One I had learned uh, by those traveling evangelists, the Grants, and the other one was John 3.16. I said, sure. God so loved the world that he gave his only unique son, so that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have eternal life. That's what I'm counting on, is what I told him. Now, what happened next surprised me a little bit because he he looked at me and he said, that's wonderful. He said, "I, I want you to know something. He said, I would like to take you under my wings spiritually. I want to help you to grow spiritually. And as he's telling me these things, he's got this little Bible that he had in his hand. I'm looking at him. I'm thinking, as I see a little emotion in his face, oh, no. There is a fanatic in my room, and he carries a Bible, the most boring book to me in all of the world. And I'm thinking, great. Not only is my hair going to turn weird, I got a weird guy in my room. 
few pleasantries were exchanged, and he said, I will come back and see you. And I'm thinking, no way you're going to see me, buddy. In our dormitory in Abel Hall, uh, the whole thing was in a figure eight formation. And in the middle part of the eight is where the elevators were. And I had a bunch of buddies, and I said to them, listen, you see that guy over there? If he ever shows up here again, I want you to come and warn me in my room. And then I'm going to go around the figure eight the other way and avoid him. And so Dean Hatfield came to see me a number of times, and I successfully fled the other direction and avoided him. But you know it's going to happen eventually, and one day it happened. My little spies let me down, and suddenly there's Dean Hatfield at my door again. And I just wish you could have been there to see the reaction on my face. He stepped up and he said, hey, I haven't been able to find you. I've been looking for you. You know, yeah, sure, pal. I've been running the other direction. That's what I'm thinking in my mind. And then these words came out of his mouth. He said, I just stopped by because I wanted to invite you to a Bible conference. And I'm thinking, a Bible conference? Why would I want to go to a Bible, the most boring book in the world to me, conference? It's, I'm thinking, yeah, right, I'm going to a Bible conference. I wasn't interested in any of the details. I'm just thinking, no way, no way am I doing that. And then, and this is part of the grace of God, because I never asked any of the details of where this was. This is what came out of his mouth. Uh, it's in, guess where? Kansas City. Could have said anywhere else in the universe, and I would have never been interested in going. But he says Kansas City. Immediately, you know, the little light goes off. Bink. This is quite a deal. I don't have a car. I can't go anywhere. I can't see my buddies down in Kansas City. But they're going to Kansas City. I could go with them, have the drive down there. This was going to be a weekend conference, Friday night, Saturday, and into Sunday. I could ditch them as quickly as I could sometime on Saturday, go hang out with my buddies. We'd drive around, see old good time things and all these places and these people we used to know. And then I could come back on Sunday and I could have my ride back to the University of Nebraska. And so I agreed to go to the Bible conference. It was held in a church called Beth Haven Church. It's in the area of Kansas City called North Kansas City in Gladstone. The pastor's name was Chester McCauley. And the theme of the Bible conference that weekend was the grace of God. And men and women, I want you to know that when I was sitting there, I'd never heard anything like it in my entire life. I was transfixed. I was mesmerized. Stayed all Friday, all Saturday, and into Sunday. And that time, as Chester McCauley opened up the Bible and began to talk about the grace of God, it was like cool, refreshing water to a thirsty soul. It was amazing grace. How sweet sound. In fact, Dean said to me, he said, Bruce, you were like a starved child. 
He was getting his first taste of good food. And that just sort of launched my spiritual life. And I spent several years devouring the Bible and devouring Scripture. And I became a great fan of what I had mistakenly thought was the most boring book in all of the world. Some of you might be thinking, well, whatever happened to the vow? I mean, whatever happened to the DJ thing? Well, you know what? As I was growing spiritually and growing in the grace of God, I I was thinking I'd been to a number of churches where the teaching was very anemic. And I thought, you know what? I could be part of the solution to that problem. Thus, I stand here today. Now, it's been over 41 years since my first introduction into the grace of God, and I have grown in grace over those 41 years. And I am very excited. I'm very excited that we get to do an extended series of messages on amazing grace. And I have spent a number of weeks soaking up the Scripture that talks about the grace of God, and I have been reading books on the grace of God. And one of those books that I have been reading in was written in 1922. The title is Grace, the Glorious Theme, and it's a book written by Lewis Sperry Chafer. Lewis Sperry Chafer was a Presbyterian evangelist and pastor, and he was also the founding president of Dallas Theological Seminary back in 1924. And Chuck Swindoll relates a story about Dr. Chafer that was told to him by another individual. Dr. Chafer at the seminary was teaching a course on grace. And in this particular situation, it was the day that he had concluded his final lecture on grace. And this is how the story goes. It was a hot afternoon in Dallas, Texas, that spring day in 1952. The aging professor who taught that particular semester from a wheelchair mopped the perspiration from his brow. No one in the class moved as the session ended. It was as though the young theologues were basking in what they had heard, awestruck with their professor's insights and enthusiasm about God's matchless grace. The gray-haired gentleman rolled his wheelchair to the door, and as he flipped the light switch off, the class spontaneously broke into thunderous applause. And as the beloved theologian wiped away his tears with head bowed, he raised one hand, gesturing them to stop. And he had one closing remark as he looked across the room with a gentle smile amid deafening silence He spoke softly. Gentlemen, over half my life I have been studying this truth and I am just beginning to discover what the grace of God is all about. And within a matter of three short months, 
that stately champion of grace, was ushered into his Lord's presence at the age of 81. When I think of Dr. Chafer's response, you know, I, I can identify with part of that. I am still growing in grace. I am still in awe of God's amazing grace. And today we're just doing an introduction. Today we're just going to be scratching the surface. And what I want to do is to share a little bit with you what Chet McCauley shared with me 41 years ago. Thus we have gone to Ephesians chapter 2. So if you have your Bible open there, I want to read the first nine verses of Ephesians 2. Paul writes and he says, You were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. Here it comes. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the ages to come, He might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. I want to show you a a chart which is part of what Chet McCauley shared with us about two competing operational principles. In the spiritual sphere of life, there are two competing operational principles. There is the merit principle and there is the grace principle. Let's first take a little closer look at the merit principle. You'll see there on that chart, we have a little box that is representative of God and a little box that is representative of man. And in the merit principle, this operational principle in the spiritual sphere of life, what happens is that man sends towards God certain deeds that he does. And then when God receives those deeds from man, the idea is that he sends benefits back to man. Man sends his deeds, God sends back the benefits. The benefits, things like salvation and righteousness and forgiveness. Two competing operational principles in the spiritual sphere of life. The first one is the merit principle. The second one is the grace principle. And remember I said it is grace that distinguishes biblical Christianity from every other religious system in the world. In other words, all the other religious systems are operating off the merit principle. The grace principle is different. 
You'll see there that we still have a box that represents God and a box that represents man. But in the middle above both of them is a box that represents the person of Christ. And with the grace operational principle, what happens is that Jesus Christ delivers his work to God the Father. And because of receiving the work of Christ, God sends benefits to man. Salvation and righteousness and forgiveness. So in the spiritual sphere of life, there are, there are just these two competing operational principles, the merit principle and the grace principle. Now, I want you to see something on that chart. Do you see that double line between the two of them? It's sort of like a double line on the road. It means that these two principles are mutually exclusive. They stand apart from one another. You can't mix the two of them together. In fact, in Romans eleven six, it says, if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works, on the basis of deeds. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. The moment that you start to take these two operational principles and you think we're going to blend them, we're going to meld them together in some way, no, you just blow grace up. Grace will no longer be grace. If you bring merit into it, it just blows the whole thing up. Grace, men and women, is highly profound and yet surprisingly simple. What I want to do in the next few moments that we have together is just look at two things. Number one, I want to look at the biblical terms for grace. And then secondly, I want to look at a definition of grace. Remember, we're just introducing ourselves to God's amazing grace. So let's look at some terms for grace. First of all, some terms from the Old Testament. And uh, you need to turn in, in your Bibles to the second book of, of the Old Testament, which is the book of Exodus in chapter 33, verse 13. And in the Old Testament Hebrew, the first word for grace is the word hen, C-H-E-N, but in Hebrew, it's like it has a K on the front of it in English, and you're clearing your throat at the same time. Chen, C-H-E-N. And in Exodus 33, we see Moses, and he's praying to God in verse 13, and he says, if I have found chen, favor, in your sight, let me know your ways that I may know you. This word means favor, and it's often favor that comes from a superior, and it also carries with it this word chen, the idea of undeserved favor. Now, the second word from the Old Testament that is an early term for grace is the word chesed, the same idea. It's like that K, and you're trying to clear your voice at the same time, C-H-E-S-E-D. C-H-E-S-E-D, chesed. And you need to turn two books to the right in your Bible to Numbers chapter 14. And here we see that term used. And by the way, this is a relationship term. But in Numbers 14, uh, verse 19, and what's been happening, by the way, is the people of Israel in the wilderness have been rebelling against God. And so we again have Moses praying here. And he says, I pray the iniquity of this people according to the greatness, pardon, he's saying. I'm asking for pardon. 
pardon the iniquity of this people according to the greatness of your chesed, your loving kindness. Maybe your Bible might say steadfast or unfailing love. And again, inherent in the word chesed is this idea of something being undeserved. Now turn in the middle of your Bible to Psalm 51. In Psalm 51, we actually see both terms used in the same phrase. King David has been guilty of sin, and he is praying for pardon in Psalm 51. And he says there to God, be gracious, that's ken, to me according to your chesed, your loving kindness. Now, when you come to the New Testament, the word for grace is the word charis. And in classical Greek, charis could mean graceful, it could mean attractive, it could mean favor, it could mean kindness. And most commonly in the New Testament, charis is used of the favor of God coming to man. Just getting a little sense for what grace is. Now, if you look in English at our word grace, it is related to the Latin word gratis. Now, if I said that something was being given to you gratis, what does that really mean? What would that mean? Free, without charge. You see, that's part of the idea of grace. So let me give you my definition of grace. Here it is. Grace is God's generous, undeserved goodness. God's generous, undeserved goodness. It is free. It is an undeserved gift. It's not based on what we do. It's not based on what we promise. It's not based on our performance. It's not based on our merit. It is unearned. It is undeserved. It is unmerited. And that, men and women, is why it is amazing grace. Now, one of the things that's interesting, and this is true of many concepts in the Bible, is that grace is progressively revealed. The deeper you go into the New Testament, the more we learn about grace, and we're going to see that in the weeks ahead. Now, one of the things I've noticed over the years in the Christian community is a lot of times there's confusion between two biblical concepts. Those concepts are mercy and grace. They're not the same thing. See, here's the difference between them. With mercy, God withholds what we deserve. That's mercy. You see, we deserve, because of our rebellion, we deserve judgment and damnation. Mercy closes the door to hell. With grace, God freely gives us what we don't deserve. You see, when you trust in Christ as your rescuer from sin and judgment, guess what? You end up being adopted into the family of God. Did you deserve that? No. When you trust in Christ, you get a glorious divine inheritance that is beyond imagination. Did we deserve that? No. You see, while mercy closes the door to hell, grace opens the door to heaven and all of the blessings. His mercy is great, and His grace is amazing. And I just simply want to invite you to join us on our journey as we look at amazing grace. I want to give you a preview of what we're going to be seeing 
in the coming weeks. We're going to look, Lord willing, next time at the God of amazing grace. We're going to see that God has been a God of grace from the very beginning of his interactions with mankind. We're going to look at the amazing grace of salvation. We're going to look at the security of amazing grace. We're going to look at our ongoing need of amazing grace. We're going to look at practical principles of amazing grace. We're going to look at the wisdom of amazing grace. And then we're going to look at heart lessons from amazing grace. And as we go through this series, I just want you to know that I have a goal. It's a goal for you. It's a goal for me. And that goal is reflected as Paul wrote to Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.1. And the goal is that you and I would be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. That's our goal this fall. Let's just pray together. Father, I I pray that that goal would prove to be true in my heart and life and in the heart and life of everyone here and everyone who listens, that we would be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Amen. I'm asking the worship team to come because they're going to lead us in a closing song of worship, and we're going to just be asking God, I hope you will ask Him too, just to stir your hearts in a fresh way by thinking about His amazing grace. And we're going to be singing the song, Hosanna. just want to remind you that in Jesus' day, the word Hosanna was very similar to our term, praise the Lord. It's just praising God for His greatness and His grace. Let's Stand together and worship Him.